either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Got some amazing sights on the big and small screen to talk about. Bit of everything again. Good variety again this week. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from MadWolf.com. Let's start off with an adaptation of a beloved book. When her family moves from the city to the suburbs, 11-year-old Margaret navigates new friends, feelings, and the beginning of adolescence. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. The blood is released through the vagina. Please, just do this one thing for me. Let me just be normal and regular like everybody else. Just please, 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 please. I don't know if I want to do this. Just so that we're ready. Please, God, let it be a lady. Do you think any of us will look like that when we're 19? Well, growing up, I heard a lot about Judy Bloom books. Um, I didn't read any of them, but heard about this one a lot. And is this the very first adaptation that the, the, the book has gotten? I think it is. It came out in 1970. It did. It came out in 1970. But I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons to be happy about this particular adaptation is that Judy Bloom is a producer. So we have her stamp of approval. And I think. And the other one is that be- because the James director and the co writer is oh. Kelly Freeman Craig, right. who did The Edge of 17 mm-hmm. a few years ago, yeah. which is. Among the better of those, you know, female adolescent movies, it had a different edge to it, a different perspective that was very welcome. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think that you can see uh, one of the reasons that all of Judy Bloom's books are so, I think, highly regarded is that she doesn't ever fall prey to that tendency of uh, authors who write specifically for uh, an adolescent or younger female demographic. They always seem to be the point is somebody, some point will notice that I'm special. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and she none of her books are like that because that's just stupid. You know, in <laughs> fact, this book is very much about figuring out who you are for yourself because she's she's new in this suburb. She kind of falls in with these three girls that are going to be her best friends, and she's excited about that, except Nancy, who is always, everything is a competition about who is going to sort of be the first to be a grown-up, who's going to need a bra first, who's going to get their first period, who's going to kiss a boy first. And so she finds herself competing with these things, and at the same time, uh, she has decided that she's going to choose her religion. Her mother is a Christian who doesn't really practice, and her dad is— Played by Rachel McAdams. Right. And her father's Jewish, who doesn't—Benny really, Safdie doesn't mm-hmm. really practice— and so she's decided now it's time she's going to. So that's the are you there, God? It's me, yes. Margaret. Now, see, I never, ever knew that. I, I, I thought I always thought it was just like, well, they were just praying for some help for their adolescent turmoil, whatever. Well, that's, but that's very interesting. Yes. That's more. It adds to the stakes. Yeah, it does. And, you know, for an 11 year old girl, that's kind of what your relationship with God would be. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, like, hey, you know, this would be great. But if that doesn't work, I can settle for this. And that's a lot of what it is. But um, all of it comes together so well because there's no she just deglamorizes, demystifies just these these horrible obstacles that you have to go through if you're a girl who's about to be like not a little girl anymore. I have to say a departure for me personally, my own personal life and literally every female I've ever known in my life. Margaret and her friends cannot wait to have their first period. 
in my whole life on planet Earth, I have never known a girl who was looking forward to their first period. Myself, my sister, and everybody else, we dreaded it like a plague. Like a plague we dreaded it. Okay. So I could never get behind that notion. Okay, thank you for cluing me into that. Now, answer this. How many pillow fights in matching underwear did you and your friends have? <laughs> Zero. Come ever. on! Not just You're me. Bursting no one. the bubble! <laughs> <laughs> but still, I mean, even so, you completely believe it with these characters. And that's one of the reasons why they're so beloved is because you do. But I want to just wrote really quickly point out, Rachel McAdams plays Margaret's mother, and she gets to be a full-fledged character. And I, I, I don't recall that being a case in the book. And it's she does a wonderful job, and it's really good. It's a great balance sort of B story. And then Kathy Bates plays the grandmother, Sylvie, and she's just a hoot beginning to end. So and we it's haven't a even really mentioned great- who, who plays Margaret. Uh, really, and that is and Margaret's played by Abby Ryder Fortson. She's amazing. She's just excellent. The whole cast, top to bottom, is really excellent. And There's looking, just one more way that the film really delivers on the promise of the book. And I think looking at her, Abby's uh, IMDb page, she's really done. She's done a lot of voices. A lot right? of it, yeah. She's done a lot of voice. But work. this is a nice breakout for her, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's good to hear because I know a lot of people. Well, we heard it on our on our TV gig this morning. The hosts were saying. A lot of people are very glad to hear it's so good because they would have been heartbroken. To hear that it's not yes. because they love the book so yes. much, and even though it came out in 1970, it's got—I mean, it's got legs. You still hear Judy Bloom is regarded, you know, so highly regarded oh, yeah. as a young adult or or an adolescent author. Mm-hmm. And I think, never having been a teenage girl, I mean, I—I—I I, I would think that at that age you appreciate that sort of honesty. Don't don't BS me. Demystify, yeah, yeah. just demystify these things. There's no reason to keep them sort of a tantalizing secret. There just isn't. And actually, right. the fact that they do seem like some sort of a tantalizing secret is a part of the book. It's like, no, there's nothing to this. Like, is that all? Do you feel different? No, you don't feel any different. You know, it's... it's yeah. And yeah. here's and here's another thing I I didn't realize. I guess with the with the book, I thought they might try to make it a straight out comedy, but no. No, the book isn't funny either. I mean, it's you know, I would say it's a, it's a dramedy. There are certainly mm-hmm. funny moments, but yeah. it's not a comedic novel. But a, a refreshing and welcome take, and a, a really nice movie adaptation of a of a well loved book. And if you're a big fan of the book, I think you'll like it. It's out in theaters now. Called Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Oh, let's do a big, big left turn for this next one. When an ex-soldier who discovers gold in the Lapland wilderness tries to take the loot into the city, Nazi soldiers led by a brutal SS officer battle him. It's called Sisu. Do you really believe that he's immortal? No, he just refuses to die. How many mines did we bury here? All of them. This is not about who is the strongest. This is about not giving up. We have a word for that in Finland. We might have a problem. My favorite piece of intel, our friend Casey uh, sent us a link, that this is based on a real person. Now, this actual run-in with the Nazis, the story here isn't, but there is a legendary World War II officer, they call him Sisu, from Finland, who killed, who is, he's credited with killing 500 Soviets. Yeah, well, this character, Adami Korpi, and he is, he, he has this reputation among the locals as a one-man death squad. Right. But he's all interested now in finding gold and then basically 
living on well, living with he and his dog yeah. are going to find and some peace horse. and his yeah. horse. They find some peace because he finds a good deal of gold. But as the synopsis says, he has to get it into the city, and that's when he runs into the Nazis. And we're at a time in history here where the war is winding down, mm-hmm. and the Nazi officers, especially this main ruthless SS officer, he knows that they're not going to win. So he's looking, when he finds how much gold this ex-soldier is carrying, he views it as his ticket to exoneration, yes. that he can buy himself from being you know, killed for his crimes. So it just becomes this, this battle between one man and all these Nazis, and I'm telling you, it is carnage, but it is some of the most beautiful carnage we've seen on screen in years. That's it's exactly correct. And not I mean, it really is beautifully shot. The Lapland, the backgrounds, everything, the choreography of the of the fight sequences are oh. are amazing, stunning. There is an underwater sequence. Oh. It's so glorious. I can't even tell you. And, you know, this is, we're talking about people, I mean, we've sat through, what, like 11 hours of John Wick at this point. All very well choreographed action. Nothing like this. I mean, this really, they find some incredibly novel, but, I mean, believable is a stretch. But, you know, uh, acceptable. Like, okay, I buy that this is just happening right now. Ways for him to murder Nazis. And is there anything better than watching Nazis get killed? I don't think so. And it's not only the the shot selection and the way they come up with these action pieces, but the cinematography. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And I'm telling you, it's bloody as all get out. So bloody. There's carnage everywhere, but it is shot so beautifully. The uh, writer and director is Jamari Hellander, who did a movie we love from years ago, a a horror movie, a a Christmas horror movie. (laughs) Called Rare Exports. Called Rare Exports. It's so great. And it's so unexpected. And it also stars this lead actor here, uh, Jorma Tamila, yep. who plays Corpy, the one-man death squad. But uh, it's such it's such a well-constructed movie. Very simple synopsis, really. I mean, it, it's, it's a march. I mean, he yep. is trying to get into the city, to the bank, to cash in this gold, and he has to battle... Every Nazi that stands in his way, and then so so revenge. He's also got a past that that makes it uh, a bit of revenge as he's killing these Nazis. And then we get a little bit of a side story with some POWs who also get a taste of revenge. And we don't want to spoil it, but that's pretty sweet too. It is. It really is. And the whole movie, it's going to feel like you know, it's got definitely a a, a, a tone to it, kind of a Sergio Leone. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. maybe a little Sam Peckinpah. Definitely some Tarantino. Absolutely, yep. all that in there. But the way he uh, he puts it together, it certainly doesn't feel borrowed, not for a second. It's no. so satisfying. Yeah, you mentioned Tarantino. The movie is separated into chapters, and the text that identifies the chapters looks very much like The Hateful Eight. But what's cool is, as the movie goes along and Corpy gets more and more beat up, so do the letters of the chapter titles. Loved it. So, if you don't mind the blood, we keep saying that, but let me tell you, this is a bloody, bloody People blowing up <laughs> yep. type of movies. If you don't mind that, then it's it's just the way that it's it's constructed and shot is just so beautiful. And it's one I'm so glad. Un, un, there's another movie we're going to talk about here in a minute that we kind of wish was on the big screen. So glad this one is on the big yeah. screen because it it's worthy of it. Yes, and see it and experience it because man, it is quite a ride. And that is in theaters now. Check it out. Called Sisu. The next one is in big screens this weekend as well. The life and boxing career of George Foreman. It's called, wait, let me take a deep breath. 
Big George Foreman, the miraculous story of the once and future heavyweight champion of the world. He made me something once, Doc. You can do it again. It is my destiny to win the heavyweight championship belt again. Last time they saw me, I looked like Superman. But now you look like the Michelin Man. This ain't no beauty contest. Michael Moore, he's 26 and unstoppable. How can you beat that man? Foreman is considered an old man in this young man's game. It's now, or it's never. Mr. Foreman, that funny little grill deal you signed is starting to generate some substantial checks. Really? Given the director is George Tillman Jr., who did The Hate You Give, among other films. Yeah, Soul Food. I, soul Food. Some good stuff. I was I was optimistic about this movie. Yeah, it's it's a shame because he has had, George Foreman, an extraordinary life. If you don't know, he hasn't he just sold grills his entire <laughs> life. As I found out in calling one of the radio stations that I call on Friday morning, uh, some of the hosts, at least one, did not know that. Saudi just sold grills. Saudi just sold grills. Had no idea that he was a champion boxer. Uh, he was. <laughs> more than once. More than once. Yeah, and it is a great story of coming out of poverty in, in Texas, and then he got an Olympic gold medal, and then the heavyweight championship of the world, and then he lost it, and then he had a near-death experience, went into preaching, quit, quit boxing, and then money troubles brought him back, and at the age of 45, won the heavyweight championship again, and now, of course, is like a beloved uh, old grandpa that's right. selling uh, pitch man for grills and whatever. So it is an extraordinary life. Unfortunately, it's told in a very ordinary way. And it is it is some of the direction, especially with the boxing scenes. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's mainly the script. It's just, it's just a Wikipedia page regurgitated on screen. Right. Now, I know that can work at the box office. And it, you look at a, something like Bohemian Rhapsody. Just very by the numbers, very boring, mm -hmm. very, I guess, crowd-pleasing. That's sort of what this does. You don't, at the end, really feel that you know him any no, better. No, no. Just kind of got a highlights reel of his yeah, life. Yeah, just here we go, boom, 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 for people that, I guess, only think that he sells grills. They're, they're, it's too bad because there are a, a couple of couple of linchpins here that you could have used to build something around. There's a relationship with his longtime trainer and mentor, played by Forrest Whitaker. Right, Oscar who's winner great. Forrest Whitaker. You could have used that as the anchor. Didn't. Uh, and you could have used really the the decision to to give up everything for the church. That's of course included, but it's just another stepping stone on the way to till we get to present day. So those those things aren't really used as a as any mode of insight or enlightenment to let us know about George Foreman the man any mm -hmm. more than we already do. But it just goes along and recounts his life. And then you get to the boxing sequences, and most of them are recounted, oh, okay, they're fine. I mean, they're nothing out of the new creed or anything, but they're fine. And then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when they get to the 1991, one of his first big bouts back as an older man against Evander Holyfield, he lost the fight, but he, he did really well. They use actual footage from the actual fight and deep fake the actor's face into George that's Foreman. That's just weird. It just it's it's such a whiplash of tone. I was like, wait a minute, that's really Evander Holyfield, and what what's going on? And then after that, you go back to the the staged footage for his ultimately championship fight that he beat Michael Moore, and it's just so 
so wildly uneven that way. And uh, Chris Davis plays uh, George Foreman. He really beefed up. I mean, he's got the height, but he really, really beefed up uh, to play the part. So he's got the look, but some of the some of the the, the fighting scenes are they, they just range, like I said, from kind of uh, uninspired to just w- what's happening right now. <laughs> and ultimately, it is an interesting story of an interesting American life and one that's worth knowing. But uh, just just told in a very ordinary way, right. which is disappointing. Yes. And that is out now called Big George Foreman, the Miraculous Story of the Once and Future Heavyweight Champion of the World. We'll go to Disney Plus for the latest adaptation of a beloved story that follows the adventures of a boy who does not want to grow up. This is Peter Pan and Wendy. Captain, it's Peter Pan. Never say... His name. Don't touch my brother! Miss me? Just like old times. All your times are old, Captain. (laughs) Come on! Everyone hang on! Did you hear that? That is one big... Grow up might just be the biggest adventure of all. This is from acclaimed writer, it was co-writer on this one, and director David Lowry, and we have loved some of his work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you go back to the... Ain't Them Body Saints. Ain't Them Body Saints. He did A Ghost Story, which I loved. Yes. Green Knight, a couple of years ago. That was his last one. Um, Old Man and the Gun. So good stuff. Yes. But here he bases this movie not only on the original text going way back from J.M. Barry, but also a little bit of the 1953 animated musical from Disney, because you'll hear a little bit of snippets from some of those songs uh, to give maybe parents and grandparents some nostalgic feels. But uh, first off, it looks fantastic. It absolutely does. It it's looks gorgeous. so good. So if it's on Disney Plus for you, if you've got a big screen, fire it up on the big screen mm-hmm. because it's almost a shame that it's not going to be in theaters because, man, visually, it deserves it. It does. And you'll know, for obviously, from the title, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, the, the, it's not that he changes things dramatically, but the focus, there's a great focus on Wendy, because the truth is, she's the one who doesn't want to grow up. Right, exactly. She's the one who's being moved out of the nursery. She's the one who's on the edge and doesn't really want it. So it's her lessons that are being learned. And so I think it's interesting the way the um, the focus shifts here, I think, in, in, in a good way. And Ever Anderson does a very solid job as Wendy Darling. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of other updates. Uh, for the first time, I think, ever... Tinkerbell is played by an actor of color, and that was a nice change of pace. Yeah, Yara Shahidi, we've seen in a few things over the years. And uh, yeah, you're right. And they give her a little bit, her language mm-hmm. uh, that is not mm-hmm. able to be understood. The little pixie talk yeah. is very interesting as well. Well, uh, also I like that the in you know in the previous versions that you've seen, all of the female characters are very petty and jealous of each other for for Peter's attention, and that's not the case here, which is nice. That's a nice change of pace, and also the way they updated the Tiger Lily, problematic character. That was nice as well. So, but not like super jarring and beachy. No, about not the head. at all. There's just it's very it's a very well put together film. It um, is, and it's also well cast when we get to Captain Hook, played yeah, by Jude, Jude Law. Law. He was great. Very good, and uh, Mr. Smee is played oh, yeah. by Jim Gaffigan. Kind of a perfect cast. Always there. welcome, yeah. but yeah, Jude Law takes a different, as you might imagine. You know, give a give Captain Hook. He's not so 
flamboyant or and cartoonish exactly. and campy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's welcome. It is welcome here. The, the, the problem with this movie oftentimes, unfortunately, turns out to be Peter Pan himself. Alexander Maloney plays Peter Pan. And we're not going to, you know, gang up on a young actor here, yeah. but he's he's. He's muted, I think. The character in the writing, in the in what he's asked to do as well, and there's just it's a little lifeless for the Peter Pan character. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly that's exactly. And you're right. You don't want you don't want to beat up on this kid. No. You know, and he's cute as he can be. It's just that, um, and it could be the direction of it, and it could be the writing. But the point is that Peter Pan needs to be a very energetic, very like you know what I mean, fly around kind of a otherworldly almost character and he he's a bit lifeless. Yeah, because that makes it more believable that people will follow him oh, yeah. like this. And he doesn't really have that. Yes, he's promising, oh, we don't have to grow up, so you have that. But he just doesn't come across as a character that has much you know, much charisma, charisma. to him to to come follow. But but it does. It looks fantastic. It really does. And if you have kids in the house and you have Disney Plus, well, by all means, fire it up because it's it's going to be it's a nice family Film, nice family adventure, especially if you already know about the Peter Pan lore. It gives it a little bit, like you said, an update with, especially with the female characters and the Wendy character, a different take, and a little bit of the music, like we said, of the of the musical. I kind of wish maybe for a little bit more the way that John Favreau did it in the Jungle Book. Sure. You didn't use the entire song, but got enough of it in there. And here you hear a little bit like um, I Can Fly mm-hmm. is most mainly an instrumental. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but still, it gives you, I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. I know that song. So yeah. that's nice. Mm-hmm. But uh, all in all, it's just it's just it's lacking a little punch, I think. Yeah. But it has, there, there are many things to like. Well, one of the, one of the, at the time it felt like an anomaly in Lowry's uh, career is that he did Pete's Dragon. A few years ago for Disney and it it wasn't his best film and so I think it's he's gone back to Disney again for another Pete story and it's just I, you know I don't know uh, it's not as if he lacks a sense of wonder I mean if you mm-hmm. saw Green Knight you know that he oh, has yeah. that in spades it's just I don't know it's just not quite catchy enough. yeah I think this one I really didn't care for Pete's Dragon right. and I know a decent amount of people did I, I I'll take this one over Pete's Dragon but uh, yeah it just just doesn't doesn't quite get there and I think the Peter Pan character himself was maybe a lot to do with that but it's out on Disney plus now looks fantastic Peter Pan and Wendy another movie in theaters next the debut from a very talented filmmaker uh, the youngest son in a traditional Pakistani family takes a job as a backup dancer in a Bollywood-style burlesque and quickly becomes infatuated with the strong-willed trans woman who runs the show. This is called Joyland. Boy, talk about a beautiful movie. Man, this week is packed with them. Really is. And it's this one especially, maybe you notice a little bit more because it's so, it's not an action film whatsoever. No. In fact, the writer, the co-writer and director, Siam Sadiq, hope I pronounced that correctly, oftentimes has a very static frame, not much going on maybe with the characters as far as movement, but what he does around them yeah. is amazing. Light and shadow and color. It's It really is. Just one scene after another is just so impressive. And he's he's written and co-written, his co-writer is Maggie Briggs, some characters that clearly he, he deeply cares for and rolls out a drama that 
once you get to the end of it, you think how it could he could have easily fell into melodrama, and it doesn't. Right. And uh, it's it's really impressive uh, the way it goes through this story of this man who uh, finally gets a job after a long time of being unemployed. His name is Hader, played by Ali Junho. And it's this backup dancer job, and it pays well. But he's in this conservative family, multi-generations, living all in one, pretty much one house, one area. And he cannot tell his his very conservative father that he's dancing. He says he's managing the theater, and he certainly can't tell him about the trans woman who's the star. But one of the ways that it ultimately shifts the entire the entire dynamic of his living arrangement, his family arrangement, is because then his wife, uh, played by Rusty Farouk, his wife Mumtaz, they the family decides, well, now you have to stop working. She'd been working in a salon and loving it. Love, yeah. And, and now they decide, no, you have to stay home and help with the with the children and the housework and everything, which she hates. Um, and that's the the first sort of uh, catalyst toward toward drama here. And then we find out that. Uh, Hater isn't the only one in this family that has some secrets. Other things come to pass. But then the big secret that Hater starts starts uh, holding is when he develops a, a budding relationship with Biba, the trans woman who is the star of the show, played by Alina Khan. And it's really their relationship that moves forward and becomes the main focus of of the drama. And Biba's played by Alina Khan. And the two of them, well, the whole cast is very, very good. Right. And... Yeah, the the way that um, the director, the writer-director frames these, especially, I know we were talking about this one scene in particular, in a room when the two of them, Biba and Hayter, start to grow closer. The way, there's a there's one of those decorative light fixtures in the room. That the, throws stars yeah, and things. and little you know? shapes around yeah. the room. Oh, my God. And the way that it's choreographed with their movements and how it shows these designs on their faces it's an incredible bit of choreography. Oh, it, it really, really is. is. Yeah, it really the is. The timing, yeah. it's so beautiful. It's, it's so, so beautiful. beautiful. And that's just one example. There are many that don't don't use like decorative decorative lights. They use just shadows and light and and the way it's framed. So it's just a really really in very impressive debut, not just technically from a a camera standpoint, but also from writing, from a writing standpoint too because it becomes a study of of characters who are longing. The the movie takes on an aching feeling, a longing for a life that you know you probably cannot have, and the steps that they're willing to take toward the end to deal with that. And it can be heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's it's just a rich, richly realized drama, both uh, through dialogue, both through writing, and through uh, directing and, and cinematography, visualization as well. So a very big recommendation for this one. I definitely want to keep uh, Siam Sadiq uh, in mind in the future because he's clearly very talented and his debut is in theaters now called Joyland. Go back to theaters for the latest from one of our favorite filmmakers. This is a sculptor preparing to open a new show trying to work amidst the daily dramas of family and friends. The latest from Kelly Reichert called Showing Up. You should make more like this. I'm enjoying my retirement. <laughs> I get up. I do a little of this, a little of that, and before you know it, it's time to watch TV again. That sounds terrible. What's going on? I'm making a piece. It's a very major piece. Very major. He's a genius. He was always incredibly creative. A lot of people are creative. 
I saw some of Joel's work at a studio yesterday. Wow, it just gives me such a lift. Pretty amazing. You know, I'm sick of not having hot water, Joe. It's such a total drag. It's such a shitty thing to do to a person. I'm sick of it. Have a great night. We do love Kelly Riker. Mm-hmm. Love everything that she's done. You know, her her movie, the movie that she put out a couple of years ago called First Cow. First Cow. Was yep. 2020, my favorite film of 2020. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely loved it. And um and this she returns to modern times, still Oregon, uh but but modern times, and she follows once again her muse, right, Michelle Williams, who's in so many of her films, yeah, who plays uh, a sculptor. And but one of the things I love about this movie is that you know so often when you think about artists in film, you see like these stark, high ceiling, white rooms, and they're all well dressed. Yeah. No, these are these are it's called showing up. These are the people just putting the work. You know, they put in the work and then they have kind of a crappy day job at like an art collective and they, you know, they're building stuff and and painting stuff in their garage. And I love it. You Mm -hmm. know, and Michelle Williams is so frumpy in this movie and in such a very authentic and wonderful way. She's so unlikable. But at the same time, she's just really trying. It's a, I mean, not surprisingly, it's a great performance because Michelle Williams is so very talented. And Hong Chow, Hong Chow. plays her neighbor, who's uh, also her landlord, who's also a friend and another artist. And their relationship is fascinating. Yeah, because one of the things that is pissing Michelle Williams off is that she has not had hot water in her apartment for quite a while. And when is Hong Chow going to fix it? And she's like, ah. Uh, I got a show. <laughs> She's yeah. just, it's not on her priority list. Right. And this is just one of the things, the daily frustrations, as well as the, her, her family life, that right. Michelle Williams has a, some tumult there as well, yep. that she has to navigate just to be an artist. Yeah. Well, but, you know, we, I think we've seen all of Kelly Riker's films, and I would not call this an outright comedy, nor would Kelly Riker call this an outright comedy. No. But it's the closest that she's made. It's funny. It is slyly funny in a lot of ways. And there are just astounding performances, top to bottom. Actually, randomly almost, she's got three of last year's Oscar yeah. nominees in this movie, Hong Chow, Michelle Williams, and also Judd Hirsch, mm-hmm. who plays Michelle Williams' father. And then John Magaro, who was so great in First Cow is she he plays Michelle Williams' brother in this movie a very very different role and he's wonderful he's he's just um, all sorts of sort of contained menace that yeah. you're afraid is going to explode yeah, at any second. Yeah, you are. You're always afraid. What is he going to do? Yeah. Especially when he shows up at one of the art galleries. There's all these breakable things. You're like, oh my God, is he going to go nuts? Yeah. And then also Andre Benjamin oh, right. is, is in this as well. So it's a great ensemble. Who, by the way, learned to work a kiln for this movie. Yeah, because you got to talk to Kelly Riker uh, for this for this for a piece that you wrote here locally in Columbus. This is sort of her, what she does, right? Breaking down things into little details, little daily routines and daily details because before actually before we saw this film we saw two short films that she made right that really just followed artists Mm -hmm. in their daily routine yeah because that is you know and i think uh, i mentioned this in the written review it reminds me a little bit of filmmaker claire denis in what what she tends to build the narrative is through the moments that most filmmakers ignore. Mm-hmm. And you get the same story at the end. It's just that she's it's not it's not like the traditional build up and highlight and big it's it's all the little little moments that might get ignored otherwise. And Kelly Reichert does very much it's a very similar way and it's so poetic. Yeah. The way that she puts a film together. It's something that always reminds me movies like this, styles like this remind me of that that great lyric from John Lennon, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Yeah. 
Yes, I'm an artist. Well, what does that mean? Right. It means this. It does. I, this is what I have to do to do my art. Yeah. I have to deal with not having hot water or whatever my crazy dad is doing or right. my brother's digging a hole in the backyard, whatever it is. And that's what she likes to focus on. And, and you're right. So many other filmmakers do not no. do that, so it, it sort of jumps out at you. It's very it's very quiet. It's very understated. It is. But uh, very, very effective once again, and another another big success for Kelly Reichert and, of course, Michelle Williams. Because, yeah, yeah going back to, the, they've, they've had plenty of very fruitful uh, collaborations. Yes. Uh, and that probably will continue, and we hope so. And that is out in theaters now, latest for Kelly Reichert, called Showing Up. Let's do a documentary next. This explores the elemental phenomenon of sound and its power to bend time, cross borders, and profoundly shape our perception of the world around us. It's called 32 Sounds. I'm listening to a whole other world down there. Aquatic insects, bugs, fish. I think of sound as being a channel of connection. A lot of people ask me, why sound? All I could say is that something was driving me to make this movie, even if I couldn't say exactly what. Hello, and welcome to 32 Sounds. That's how you do it. <laughs> okay. This is a documentary from artist Sam Green, and it is fascinating uh tori haynes review this one for us at madwolf.com you know and and it's it's not just sort of an you know audio nerds documentary because what it really does you're looking at me when you said maybe that. <laughs> um it connects the sense of sound right the sense of hearing with with you know time with loss with connection to other people with grief it just builds this entire world around how important what we hear is to us and how sound can capture so much it is a fascinating story yeah i was a little mad that we let T- uh, tori uh <laughs> review this because <laughs> uh, this sort of stuff is fascinating to me right. fascinating and this is just yeah it's it's one of those just endlessly educational yeah documentaries that uh, most most documentaries uh, try to aspire to be right. but also makes you think of something in a totally different way you know some sound that you just hear every day mm-hmm. and then didn't really stop to think about it or explore sounds that you don't hear every day because you can get these hypersensitive microphones underwater or whatever it might be yeah just fascinating and this one is available on VOD now and check out Tori's review at madwolf.com this one's called 32 sounds And one more, a horror thriller after mysteriously inheriting an abandoned coastal property. Ben and his family accidentally unleash an ancient, long-dormant creature that terrorized the entire region, including his own ancestors, for generations. It's called the Tank. Sweetie, something's trying to get in. Oh, no, there's nothing we can do. Can you feel it, The tank was open. My mother wasn't crazy like they thought. Our time is coming. Some families have secrets. Daniel.
Daniel Baldwin, Schlocketeer, reviewed this one for us at MadWolf.com. Yeah, he had to take this weekend off the lobby, so we'll get him involved this way. Yes, we will. He uh, he enjoyed it. It is a creature feature, and that's always a lot of fun. Yeah. And more importantly, it's by the same group of people who did all of Peter Jackson's effects. New Zealand creature feature artists, and they also did one of our favorites, Black Sheep. Oh, yeah. And so the, oh. the creature effects are great. And then the lead performance, Luciana Buchanan, again, great. She's wonderful. And she really elevates the material a great deal. It's um, it's it's absolutely B-movie fodder. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you inherit this great space, but then there's a monster there. But it's handled in a fun way. It's not the greatest movie, but if what you're looking for is a creature feature, you're all in. Yeah, writer-director is Scott Walker. And yeah, if you like this and you haven't seen Black Sheep, by all means, look that one up. (laughs) That one is hilarious. Because that is a hoot. But uh, check out Daniel's written review uh, at madwolf.com. And this one is available on VOD now. It's called The Tank. All right, so we mentioned Schlocketeer taking this week off. So we look ahead to next week. One big one. Actually, we just saw it last night. I'm still putting together our thoughts. We'll get them together by next week. And that is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Is it just called 3? I I think so, Volume 3. I didn't catch if there was a a colon or anything about it. I think it's Volume 3. Volume 3. So wrapping up the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy. We will talk about that next week. And there's some other stuff, too. I'm not quite sure what they all are. (laughs) (laughs) We neglected to write it down. Uh, Well, I did. It's my fault. (laughs) That's all right. One big one. And I'm sure there'll be some other good ones to talk about. There there always are. So in the meantime, there's good stuff to talk about this week as well. So uh, let us know what you thought about anything. Digging the Sisu or the Peter Pan Big George, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Let us know. We love to keep the conversation going. You can easily find us on Twitter. That's at MadWolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F, also on Facebook and Instagram. It is Mad Wolf Columbus and the main website where you can find all of our written reviews, our other horror movie-only podcast as well called Fright Club. All there for you at MadWolf.com. So have a great week. Enjoy the movies. Holy moly, next week it's going to be May. No. What's the deal? Wow. We'll talk then. Uh, So be well. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.